The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guest and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. It's your social worker with a microphone this morning. Thank you all for joining us. Lauren Beller Blake, Catherine Zox, the Catherine Zox Show on Voice America Variety. Dot com. How are you this morning, Lauren? Good morning, Catherine. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. First thing i got to ask you about, because we talked about it last week, and I know you had your contest, so I want everybody to what, what, for, explain the contest, because this is your website, this is your <coughs> business. What happened, and you had a contest. Uh, I want to talk about that, because I want to know what happened. First well, we of all, had our first Twitter contest. Twitter oh. contest, folks. Is this the first Twitter contest Anywhere in the world? No, because I got the idea from reading a great book called Twitter Power. Twitter Power. Okay, yeah. so somebody However, else has done so it or other people are doing it, but first time for you. Okay, so first what happened? Time for what me. is it? Um, what I learned is you really should not have a contest until you've had like 10,000 followers because it's not <laughs> enough. You need to have lots of people following or else the contest doesn't really go off well. But it's a, it's a very simple concept. You just come up with something that you're going to put out to your followers and ask them to respond within a short amount of time, like 10 or 15 minutes. And whoever gets the answer right, they cannot respond direct message. They have to respond publicly, which is great, because then it gets the activity going publicly. And then anybody that gets the answer right within that time frame, they get, their names get entered into a drawing, and you choose one person that wins the contest. Right, so you have a business, and you decide, okay, I want to do a Twitter contest, and you only have four or 500 people who follow you. It not doesn't really, it's not such a great idea. That's what no, you're go saying. bigger. And I, we didn't know. You never know how big yeah. the right number is. So it was a, um, a big flop, and at the same time, I learned a ton, and I have a new goal. I, need, I would like to get to 10,000 Twitter followers. So um, we're getting there. It's, go, it's growing. It's amazing how fast it actually grows once you get to about 500. Well, it's interesting because wasn't Bill Gates or one of those guys, it wasn't Twitter, I think it was Facebook, he had 10,000 followers or something like that, well, Facebook, and he you can, got I, off because <laughs> he decided, I don't want all of these people following me or knowing what I'm doing. So I think it was Facebook that he just kind of just decided, I'm not going to do it anymore. I but totally could for, see that. Yeah, what? But for those of us who are running a business, is 10,000, I mean, is, is it 1,000, I mean, 2,000, 5,000? It really relative, has to be right? more than that, you're saying, to make it worthwhile. So people know who you are, and pe- people are responding. I mean, you're just kind of, you don't want to just attend to 500 or 600 people. Well, it's all relative. Like, 500 is a great number, <clears throat> yet if you're trying to do a contest, many people are not following Twitter real time. So you need to have the masses, larger numbers, so that your people are following you real time, a certain percentage. All right. So you have to wait now until you get 10,000 followers. That's my next goal. As 10,000, we'll offer it again. All right. Good. Great. So that should be what, in a couple of weeks? Uh, no. I'm hoping <laughs> by the end of the year. We'll see. It's, All I mean, right. At the end of the year, because you're the lady who says you have to have goals, you have to have a, a goal. vision. It is you a can't goal, just say, not, oh, I want 10,000 followers. You, know? you have to have a plan. Exactly. You do totally need a plan. Okay. As to how.
how you're going to get them. Uh, I want to talk about our guest today because he's going to be coming on in a, well in a few, after we go to break. But birthday, birth, birthday, B-I-R-T-H, and then there's a uh, blank, and then day. This is a pediatrician. It's a really good book, Lauren. A pediatrician explores the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. Somehow... Childbirth is always interesting, even when you've got way beyond it. But, you know, the miracle of birth and how we were born, and this is all about the, the history and the science, and he has all these antidotal stories. It's a, it's a very cool book. Um, he started out, he didn't start out as an obstetrician, but he started out uh, studying obstetrics and then, of course, went right into pediatrics. But anyway, so he's going to be our guest. So think about any questions you may have for him. Yeah, birthday. Mark Sloan blends personal antidote, hard science, and bizarre historical detail, and I like the historical detail, to deliver a fertile and amusing account of the womb-to-world journey that every one of us has made. Uh, without a doubt, this book will educate, entertain, and prompt you to call your mother in gratitude. <laughs> I don't know about That's that. <laughs> I should give it to my boys, see if they call me in gratitude. Usually if I start talking about birth, it's like, yuck. Yeah, I bet. Funny. Yeah. You know, Different it's interesting. We're, I was just talking to a friend. I just had two friends have babies, one baby each, and um, I was talking to one of them about how birth is a big deal. We, we don't, I think we take it for granted that how risky it really is and how, you know, people, there's people that still, they don't survive through childbirth. So it is, it's a big deal. Yeah. Well, you bring up a point. This is something that he talks about in the book. I'm not going to mention it now because one of the chapters one, maybe more, deals with that, you know, the risk. We do take things for granted that, oh, you know, it's having a baby, it's not risky. Uh, and you know, we've sort of, I don't know why, but we, we, you're absolutely right. That is one of the issues. So he talks about that in the book as well. Also, Lauren, I talked to, do you know any people, do you have girlfriends or do you have, who have cho- children or do you know women, um, just your own age who suffer from eating disorders? You know, I don't really, I don't, I know one person, and I, it's not like it's prevalent, but I think I'm missing it, because I think it probably is much more prevalent than I even know. So you know one person who has admitted to you that they have an eating disorder, or that they... Admitted to a friend who, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, yeah. So yeah. it's not a direct friend, it's a friend of a friend. Okay, so, but it is somebody that you're familiar with. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. Ten, well, this is a statistic I just learned. Ten million women, this is, and this is probably you know, less than what really is, but 10 million women suffer from eating disorders just in the United States alone and approximately 1 million men. And it's, it's mainly a problem for women, but not only because men do suffer from it as well. And it goes, it covers the gamut. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's very diverse. It's a very diverse group of, uh, of women from, from young women, you know, from 10 to, to, to 80 really. Uh, and so it's not just teenage girls, but it's, I didn't realize that it was so prevalent. So I had to, I mean, I guess I knew it, but it's, when you start to think about those numbers, then it's gotta be a lot more than we realize. Exactly. And if someone's, and, and anyone who is listening, cause I had a couple people ask me about the topic, there's a, there's a, there's a woman, her name is Jenny Schaefer, a young woman, Jenny Schaefer, J-E-N-N-I-S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R. And she just wrote, uh, and it just came out, this book came out in July, called Goodbye, Ed, and Ed stands for eating disorder. Goodbye, Ed, oh, hello me, recover from your eating disorder and fall in love with life. And uh, she's the ambassador for the National Eating Disorders Association. She's on TV, she's on radio, she's also a singer-songwriter in Nashville, an amazing w- woman. And she has um, 
she's cured. She calls it. She doesn't. She doesn't speak of being in recovery, but recovered. She is recovered. She has recovered from her anorexia, and I, I think uh, also she had some bulimic behaviors as well. But it's pretty scary stuff because one of the things you can. I didn't realize this. You can suffer from an eating disorder, but you don't necessarily have to be malnourished. Uh, you don't have to necessarily weigh 90 pounds or 80 pounds. You can be at a normal weight or above average weight, but it's your relationship with food. Right. You I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think a lot of people don't even realize how they probably have an issue with their relationship with food. Because, you know, so we don't know what, we don't want to look at that. We we never want to look at that. Yeah. It's always about our, and you know, doesn't it always, you talk about this in business, it's always about our balance, you know, being balanced, whether it's work or mothering or whatever it is, and it also in this case has to do with food, you know, a balanced relationship with food. And um, and, and that's, that's I guess that's part, of the, that's part of the diagnosis in terms of whether you have an eating disorder or not. You have to have, you know, a good relationship with food. But anyway... Um, it, it was, it's an interesting book, and it's a big problem, so I thought that I would mention this. Uh, and there's also the question of whether it's genes versus genes, what causes eating disorders, genes, J-E-A-N-S versus genes. Oh, I love that. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. G-E-N-E-S. Uh, it's a little bit of both. I think it absolutely is a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like child rearing is nature and nurture. It can't, you can't separate the two. They're, they both have impact, and I have a feeling that, Genes and genes both have impact there. Genes and genes do have impact. You have a predisposition to something. I mean, you may have a predisposition to be someone who is very focused, very obsessive, uh, a perfectionistic kind of person, whatever that is, and then you get in the right or the wrong environment, and that will kind of, and then it plays out in terms of, uh, you know, how you handle uh, your particular set of genes, G-E-N-E-S. That makes sense. Yeah. And I do think it's learned from our mothers most of the time, you know, our yeah. relationship with food. You know, the mother's usually the one preparing food. They're usually the one feeding the kids. You know, it's interesting. And it's interesting how different. If you go and, uh, you know, if you, you have a young daughter, you go into different of your friends' houses and you watch how they feed their babies, how they feed their kids, when kids are allowed to eat, when they're not allowed to eat, what they're allowed to eat. It's very complex. They it always is. told it really us. Really yeah, I mean I mean Lauren, they used to tell us in social work school when I was getting my masters in social work, if you want to know about a family, if you want to know how they function and communicate with one another, uh, if you go and have lunch or dinner or I suppose even breakfast with the family you will learn in one hour the enti- the family dynamics by sitting down and having a meal with them. I totally agree with that. I was just speaking to my husband last night about this topic. My, I was raised in a family that nobody left the table until everyone was finished. And we have a very slow-eating daughter. <laughs> she takes forever. Good for her. Do not... Do not. Do no, not, not get rush her away from that. My yeah. husband doesn't have the patience to sit, so he'll leave the table. And she and I will sit there for an hour while she eats. But he leaves, he doesn't have the patience to sit there for an hour. So, you know, it's just interesting, but that's like such a typical family dynamic. And I what does that say? Because so it's not patient. all about the food. You just said 
your daughter will sit there and spend an hour finishing her food, and you will sit there with her. What happens during that hour? Exactly. You talk. You communicate. Exactly. You're telling, you know, it's as she true. gets older, you're going to talk about what she did during the day, or or even the stuff that really bothers you. Uh, you know, especially with kids, that's the time that it, it can come out. You know, not when you're jumping up from the table and going on doing something. That's exactly right. That's when it comes out. She actually said to me last night. So this is like right fresh. She said, "You know, sometimes, mommy, I do not love you." She was three. <laughs> I said, you know, Sierra, sometimes mommy gets frustrated, but I always love you. Yeah. You know? That's so cute. <laughs> that's the relationship. And, not, and you know, five years, she's not going to even say that. She's going to say, I hate you. Exactly. I hate you. I hate you. And I want to get away from you. That's so funny. Um, I agree with you. It, sit down with Emil and notice how the, the family dynamics, because it's so interesting that I will be the one to sit in for an hour. And I don't mind. I mean, sometimes I do. It's like, oh, my God, I have so much to do. Yet, that's what's most important. She needs to eat. And I was raised that you don't leave the table until you're finished eating. And that's why you are such a good communicator. That's why it's part of your business. It's a part of who you are. It's why you're inspirational to other people because your mother sat with you, hey, and had dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and didn't jump up and and, then run away to what? Talk to somebody else? Somebody else is more important? Talk to somebody else. Go watch TV. It never happened. It It was not ever a priority. That's the best story. I mean, I don't think we sat for an hour, but we also would sit and talk. That was part of the meal. Not just the eating, but the talking was just as important. All right, we're going to take a short break, and our guest should be coming up soon. Good, uh, Our guest is author of Birthday, Mark Sloan, MD. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. It's the Catherine Zox Show with Lauren Beller-Blake, my co-host, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com this morning. Don't go away. We'll be back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to put the pep back in your step, Chad Lafferty says just what you're looking for. Dance is life. Life is dance. It's only about dance. It's about moving through life with style, gaining awareness of the never-ending, ever-flowing movement that accompanies all of life's activities. Dance is Life, Life is Dance, broadcast every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Radio Network. Be sure to tune in and tap into the limitless healing that dance can provide. Can't stop now. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericavariety.com with my co-host, Lauren Beller-Blake. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And we do have our guest here. Our guest is Mark Sloan, M.D. Uh, he's been a pediatrician and a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics for more than 25 years. He is one of the highest-rated pediatricians, and this is by patients as well as peers, in Kaiser Permanente's North California region. His writing has appeared in the Chicago Tribune and San Francisco Chronicle, among many other publications. Lives in Santa Rosa, California with his wife and two teenage children and is author of the book Birth Day. And those are two words, birth and day. And it's described as a pediatrician explores the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. I would also add the politics of childbirth. That's what struck me as I was reading the book. Welcome to the show, Mark. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Well, everybody's interested. Why are we interested? I mean, I know I'm going to ask you why you wrote the book, but I think everybody's always interested in their birth, their children's birth. It kind of never goes away, the wonders of childbirth. So I assume that's one of the reasons you wrote the book. But uh, tell us, why? you know, birthday, it's a very clever title. Well, it, it, I'm, a, I'm a pediatrician, and in, uh, in the course of uh, my 30-year career, I've attended about 3,000 births. And... Um, I don't deliver the babies. I go in case there's a problem, you know, if the, if the obstetricians are concerned about um, how the birth is going. So I've spent a lot of time observing birth, and, and, but not really being a central part of the actual delivery. And it's been fascinating to me ever since I started my career how, you know, we ended up as humans giving birth the way that we do. And about 10 years ago, I, I got the idea that, you know, it was such a universal passage, I really wanted to write more about it because I've been writing for quite a while before that, and that's kind of how I got started on it. But, uh... yeah. And you cover all the, you co- well, let's take the top, I'm going to take the ones that I'm interested in and ask you about them, but the evolution of childbirth is interesting, because I've had three boys, three babies, and every woman always likes to talk about the experience of her childbirth. I don't know one that doesn't. I can go into detail about all three of them. I won't. But the evolution of childbirth, childbirth is painful. I mean, you start out with that in the book, but you give a really kind of anthropological reason as to why it is painful. I found that fascinating. So I, let's tell, I want to, I want you to discuss that or describe it. The, you know, you know, why it has to be painful for, and I guess we're the only mammals that it, childbirth is really that painful for. Well, we're certainly the only, only large primates who, um, who have that much trouble with it. In the book, I use the example of um, a gorilla giving birth and how um, gorilla mothers are so large compared to their fetuses that the baby passes through the birth canal in about 15 or 20 minutes, and that's, that's the end of it. Uh, the mother doesn't show much discomfort, but that may be just to avoid looking vulnerable to predators or something. But at any rate, it, it, it's, it's nothing on the order of a, of a human birth. And how we got to where we are is uh, up until about, about 5 million years ago, we... Our ancestors gave birth pretty much the way gorillas do now. It was, it was a fairly straightforward, fairly easy process. But then um, when, when our ancestors started to walk upright, for a lot of reasons, the shoulders got broader. And, 
that included the shoulders of the fetus. And so gradually the female pelvis uh, widened you know, from side to side to, to allow those big shoulders to get through. And then about a million and a half years ago, that's when we really took off with our brains growing rapidly and our heads getting bigger. And that was the second big adjustment that uh, mothers had to make was that the uh, uh, pelvis got bigger in the front-to-back dimension. So, But we reached a point where the uh, pelvis can only get so large. I mean, because any larger in, in a female, uh, you know, one or a female in those days walking or running would be very awkward and would have been quite easy for a predator to pick off. So the next adjustment we got into was that we started to have our babies in earlier and earlier stages of development, which is why our, our babies now are um, really they're so helpless compared to gorilla babies or chimpanzee babies. So we started having our babies, we have our baby in nine months gestation. So before that, a million plus years ago, the gestation period was much longer for, for us? No, it's just that the, the much more development went on in the womb. I don't think anyone really knows how long the pregnancies were, you know, that far back. But um, uh, there's a primate anatomist by the name of uh, R.D. Martin, who, was, who I wrote about in the book, who uh, calculated that for our babies to reach about the same skill level as... Uh, you know, gorilla babies or chimpanzee babies, we really have to uh, have almost like a 21-month pregnancy because it's not until we're out of the womb for another year or so that, that our kids are, are that skilled. So a lot of the development that used to go on inside the womb now goes on well, you know, well after you're born, really. So technically we are the only, I guess, mammals uh, where we are hopeless and helpless for the first year after we're born, that we can't, we, there's no chance of surviving on our own. Right, and, that's, and that's, that's been responsible, too, for a lot of the social um, developments in, in humans, you know, in terms of drawing fathers in to help take care of babies, or at least to help protect mothers who are taking care of babies, uh, because in, in other species you don't see anything like that. Well, the only thing that I have, uh, one issue that I have with fathers, and I don't know if you do, Lauren, but I, and I, I see this with a lot of the young women today, why do they insist in saying we're pregnant, we are pregnant? Now, just we are not pregnant. Only females are pregnant. Only, and any woman who has been through pregnancy knows that she's the only one who gets pregnant. Where does that come from? Well, I, I think it's an effort to include fathers more in uh, First of all, I agree with you because, uh, yeah, only one of you is getting pregnant. <laughs> and only one of you is going to give birth. But, uh, but I think that kind of came about is, as fathers were drawn more into the, into the labor and delivery itself. Like when I, my first child was born in 1990, that was the, the heyday of the father as the, as the labor coach. And I think there was an effort to try to make fathers feel more included because speaking as a dad, I mean, it is sort of a, a time when you're, you're sort of peripheral to the whole process because between you know, labor, delivery, breastfeeding and things, it is a, a very much mother-centric uh, time as it should be. But uh, so I think that's probably where that came from. Is just and I think uh, I think Mark and I don't know about you, Lauren, but you know they try to or they the attempt in the early nineties to draw it. Well, even early, I had my babies in my seventies and eighties. You know, they were trying to bring dads in. So the dads come in and they're trying to be coaches. I don't think they're very good coaches. The midwife is. I had a midwife and, and doctor at one of my births. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I am. <laughs> and the midwife was fantastic. She was a great coach. You know, the first baby, my husband was coaching. He didn't know what he was doing. Not a good situation. But anyway, when you really need the dads is when you bring the babies home and they want to incorporate them into that. But then it seems like then they're not so available. I mean, so I'm not sure that, that we've kind of figured that problem out. What do you think, Lauren? <laughs> you make me laugh. <laughs> First of all, um, we were never pregnant. It was me, just to get clear on that. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <clears throat> and um, 
I agree with you. The uh, husbands, I think they get totally thrown off in the process. They are not really the best coaches in that process because they're stunned and surprised in the process more than we are. Yeah. All right. That uh, that came about because uh, in the mid-20th century, nobody came to births except the the mother and the doctor and the nurse. Interesting. And uh, as the dads or as family members were brought back in with the beginnings of the natural childbirth movement in the 50s, for some reason, the dad got nominated to be the one to be in the room. And it's true. I mean, men don't have a patch of their brain devoted to what it's like to have a baby. Mm-hmm. Or and body. So, yeah, and there's a, a, you know, a lot of studies that show that dads have their, their own issues they're dealing with in, in that situation, and they really aren't the best. Well, I shouldn't say always, but generally speaking, the best coach or a best companion for a woman in labor is to have an experienced woman with her, someone who's been through this, who can kind of, you know, understands what, what goes on and can kind of talk you through the, the rough patches. You know, so. Now let's talk about the politics of how you give birth, because mm-hmm. I think that had a lot to do, uh, I think, in, in, in reading your book, a lot to do with, with men and physicians and doctors uh, who were traditionally men, and it's not so today, but that whole issue, and I had such an issue with this, when I was reading your book, I thought, oh my God, I never knew this, and it started making me angry. Uh, the lying flat on your back to give birth, mm-hmm. which has been something that, I don't know if they still do it today, I think they do in some hospitals, but um, it, the most uncomfortable position for a woman to be in, and any woman could tell you that, but up until 10 years ago, women were lying flat on their backs to give birth. Where did that come from? Well, in, in that group of men you were indicting there, you forgot. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, and we the, love the, men, by the way. This is, you know, <laughs> go ahead. Now, the, uh, um, the origin of the lying flat on the back position actually goes back to King Louis XIV in France in the late 17th, early 18th centuries, because he was apparently something of a voyeur, and he, his mistress, one of his mistresses was approaching the birth of their child, and he really wanted to watch the birth, and so he instructed his men to construct uh, an observation table for him to be able to watch over the, over the obstetrician's shoulders. And so, dutifully, the men made the platform, and dutifully, the obstetrician let him watch. Um, and then, since the royal obstetrician was the top of the, of the, the uh, pinnacle of obstetricians in France, it spread very quickly to other obstetricians that this was the king's preferred uh, position for a woman to give birth in. And because the French were the leading obstetricians at the time, it then spread through most of Europe. And it wasn't. It was really not. But another thing that was happening about that same time is that's when forceps started to be used a lot too, and so it was also much easier for a doctor to see and feel what he was doing with his forceps if he if a woman was laying flat on her back. But it wasn't until the really the 19th century that anyone even questioned that in the Western world. And there was a fellow by the name of George Engelman who was a very influential obstetrician in St. Louis who you know realized looking at that position that women were actually pushing their babies uphill to, to give birth, so it made no sense to him. And he he looked at, I think it was 27 or 30, um, what he called primitive cultures to compare, and he found that none of them, in none of those did, did women lie flat on their backs, and in all of them, the women actually went out of the way to avoid that position because it was so awkward. So it really is, we owe it all to a king, <laughs> and it has changed quite a bit. It's, you know, it's going back the other direction, but... Really, for you know, a couple centuries at least, that was that was the norm. And it's it's amazing how that becomes the norm. And even as women, and and just as a culture, a society, we, we just 
we don't even know why. I mean, I remember questioning, and I'm going to talk about the, this my one particular birth when we come back from break because we don't have too much time, but um, really begging not to have my baby lying down. This was in the early 80s, and they thought I was crazy. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the outcome and what happened, but um, it was very difficult to have the birth the way I wanted it to be, and this was the third birth, so obviously, and, you know, healthy babies, etc. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. We are talking to Mark Sloan, MD. His new book is called Birthday. It's a great book. It's, it's one of those you can't put down. A pediatrician, and he is the pediatrician, explores the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. Great book. Anyway, don't go away. Lauren Beller-Blake, my co-host, you're listening to Voice AmericaVariety.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. We'll be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Is it really true that nearly half of all marriages end in divorce? Get the answers to this and other questions about relationships on Relationship Radio with Jim Duzak. The program's devoted to marriage, divorce, midlife dating, and men-women relationships in general. Jim and his guest experts will have plenty of information, insights, and advice for you, all as part of a lively and wide-ranging discussion about today's relationships. You can listen Friday afternoons at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, for Relationship Radio with Jim Duzak on Voice America. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. We're back. Thanks for joining us this morning. I'm Catherine 
Socks, your social worker with a microphone with my co-host, Lauren Deller-Blake, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And Lauren and I are talking to Dr. Mark Sloan this morning. Great conversation. I love talking about birth, and now I'm going to tell you about mine. But the title of his new book is called Birthday, and that's two words, birth and day. A pediatrician explores the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. And he has great stories. He does. He talks about the science. Mark, you talk about science and culture and all the stuff that comes into play when we have a baby. Uh, before we took the break, we were talking about the position of lying, da- lying flat and having a baby, which is really the most uncomfortable position for a woman to be in, I think, to have a child. I mean, you mentioned in the book, Mark, about, you know, we don't uh, defecate lying down. That's really kind of goes against gravity, and it's the same thing for having children or having a baby. It makes so much sense. It does. Uh, yeah, but, the, well, that's what uh, George Engelman, the obstetrician I was talking about, he, that was one of the analogies he made in very genteel 19th century language was that, you know, we use gravity and our abdominal musculature to have a bowel movement, so why would anybody want to lay on their back to do either that or have a baby? So really well, when I had my yeah. baby, it was 1983, so it's sort of the middle of the 80s. This is my third, and went to a major, terrific hospital in uh, in New York, actually in upstate New York, and I said, you know, I do not want to have this baby in a hospital. I w- I'd love to have it at home. And the head of obstetrics said, I'd love to deliver it at home, but I get, you know, your baby at home, but you'll get you know, I'll get my license taken away. So he said, I'm going to refer you to a physician. She's, she has a birthing center in her house. Her husband's a social worker. She's an obstetrician. She's really good. I had this baby in her house, which is really essentially like a farmhouse with her emergency equipment in the closet, literally. But when I got there, I had the baby in, in an hour and 40 minutes, but anyway, got there, and she just said, you assume the position that's comfortable for you. And she had a mattress on the floor, and my husband was there, and actually one of my older kids was there, and so was the nanny. I, I'm a narcissist, so I had a whole audience. Anyway, but on the floor, and I did it, and it was the comfortable position was on all fours. And the doctor, she got in bed with me, crawled underneath, me and delivered the baby. Mm. So, the, and the mid, nurse midwife was sort of massaging me, and, and you know, to make me feel more comfortable. But that was the position. So the doctor was doing the contortions. Is my point? Not I. I wasn't doing them. And he was born in twenty minutes, and we went home. You know, an hour later, two hours later. Well, it's another one of those things that makes sense. Is that you know, if you're comfortable in the position, you figure things must be going better, uh, and that's true. And again, there's, there's actual studies to show that women were sort of left to their own devices, you know, with, with some, some guidance and some, a lot of support. Uh, whatever position they get into is usually the one that's going to help the baby be born with the least amount of uh, you know, trauma to everybody involved and, and, uh, and quickest. So it's, it, it, it just makes a lot of sense. It's like anything else. If you have a, you know, a broken arm and you splint it in a comfortable position, that's probably the best place for it. Although in a hospital, I guess it's the greatest good for the greatest number. This is the other side. You can't have the doctors crawling in bed with you and delivering the babies. No, I haven't. Don't think I, I must say I haven't <laughs> seen that one. <laughs> that would. Let's talk about cesareans because I have a question for you. Yeah, I mean, you, and you had devote an entire chapter to cesareans and why I guess they are more prevalent, but they're much more dangerous, I think, than a lot of us uh, realize. And I know a lot of women now, young women, young women, in the, who decide. Uh, they're going to have a cesarean based on whether or not they're taking a trip, they have a business engagement. I mean, it's based on those kinds of things. What do you think about that? And then let's talk about, you know, what you, you know, because you have a, a lot of 
of information about cesareans and, you know, the pros and cons in, in your chapter? Well, cesareans have gotten, um, they really are safe enough if you look at just the, the, that particular slice of time, that they're almost as, as safe anymore as a, as a, a vaginal birth. That's a remarkable thing, but it's true. Uh, Did you say almost, Mark? What does almost mean? It's no, they're not well, it's as because you're, I mean, you're having major surgery, so it's it's going to be a little more risky than otherwise. But the and again, I'm not speaking as an obstetrician, but the obstetrics folks are debating back and forth with each other about um, the right of a woman to request a cesarean with her first pregnancy with no no labor, no nothing, and it's pretty well divided. A lot of American obstetricians are in favor of it. A lot of a lot of obstetricians are opposed to it. Uh, I think a greater number of European obstetricians are opposed to the idea of just signing up for a cesarean, and it's not that big of a trend yet in the U.S. But in Latin America, certainly a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of women uh, just sign up for their cesareans. And there's some cultural things in there that, that labor is seen as sort of a, you know, a, a primitive thing, and a lot of women don't want to go through it. But as a pediatrician, when I look at it, I have more concerns about the, the long-term effects, you know, because we really haven't looked at um, you know the uh, really the pros and cons on children's health down the road. And there are some studies in the last few years to show that kids born by cesarean section um, are really at higher risk of developing asthma and uh, allergic problems later on in life. And backing into that, it looks like there probably is some fine-tuning of the immune system that goes on during labor that if you're just jumping ahead to a cesarean, you're not going to get. So what is it? I'm curious. Exactly. Explain. Can you explain that in layman's terms, not medical terms? Because you say because there seems to be a higher incidence of asthma and allergies in, in kids today. But you know, you you say it's we. I you know um, contribute. Say well, it's the environment. You know, a toxic environment and all that kind of stuff. But you're saying it may be related to our birth. And well, how, explain that to us. What does happen during the birth process that kind of uh, boosts our immune system? Well, there are many things obviously that contribute to to asthma later on, including pollution and things like that. But um, the, there's a couple of theories of what might be causing a somewhat increased risk of asthma. One is uh, the uh, fact that during labor, a mother bathes her baby's uh, bloodstream with a lot of hormones and chemicals, uh, antioxidants, things like that, that may have something to do with sort of stimulating the final development of the immune system. The other thing is that baby, if you look at the types of bacteria that grow in the bowel of people years down the road, uh, people who are born by C-section have a very different profile of good bacteria in the bowel than people who are born vaginally. Huh. And those bacteria are kind of what teach us what's normal and what's not in terms of things coming in from the outside environment. So if you have a different crop of bacteria in there, your immune system may get the wrong message in terms of you know, what you should be attacking or what how you should be reacting to things. And... Uh, so there's a lot of interesting research going going on in that regard. No one's quite sure yet what the what the risk is, but it seems to be something either again about you know, stim- stimulating the immune system during labor, or perhaps this whole bacteria thing may have something to do with it. Is that why they always ask you? And I never really asked. You know, they'll want to know whether or not you had a vaginal birth, or they'll ask, well, they ask that the pediatrician asks that whether it's a va- obviously a vaginal birth or a cesarean, or they'll ask you. That same question, is that part of the reason? What do you mean right at, right at the time of birth or later on? When, no, when? later on, when you're, if you say you're filling out a form, a medical form in terms of, you know, just a, a routine kind of medical form, they sometimes will ask that. Well, one of the reasons you ask it is because, at least in the past, before people started having C-sections much more frequently, uh, usually there was a reason you had the C-section, and it might have something to reflect on the baby's health or 
uh, or your health. And, and so, so me asking that question to a parent usually is I want to make sure, okay, if you had a completely uncomplicated vaginal birth, that's one thing. If you had a C-section, tell me why you had the C-section. So cause it, was it a premature baby? Was it something like that going on? Okay, and there's other stories though in that chapter on uh, cesarean, and you talk of this is I love this story about the um, well her first name his first name was Barry I guess this is the James Barry James Barry last name was Barry James Barry who was the person who did the first C section apparently the and and in what year was that and who was he Well, that was in 1826, and James Barry was a British Army surgeon, and this was one of the interesting things I came across when I was doing the research on the book. I just wanted to go get the history of cesareans in the in the Western world, and James Berry's name kept popping up. And uh, in reading more and more about it, uh, I found out that James Berry had a 40-year career as a British Army surgeon, real cantankerous person. He had gotten duels and got arrested and shipped out by the by the army because kept causing so much trouble for people. But not until he was laid out for his burial that they find out that he was actually a woman. And so the irony of the fact is the first successful cesarean, meaning that, that uh, both the mother and child survived, uh, that had been recorded in the Western world was actually performed by a woman. And it was a, But when you see the pictures from the 1830s, 1840s, there's a couple of photographs, you have to wonder, how did they not know? Yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> tiny little person with these big padded up shoulders to look taller and, and apparently she wore elevator shoes. And she has this, you know, no beard and very thin, wispy, pulled down sideburns. And I think, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, denial is, you know, is one of those very strong defenses, I guess. I don't know. Well, either that or she had a very strong protector. I wasn't sure yeah. <laughs> what, what was going on there. Yeah, that's yeah. Very, but that's an example of all these great stories that you kind of weave in with the, with, with the history, which, which makes, to me, which makes the book so interesting. I love it. I mean, we've only got three more minutes, but, you know, that whole issue of childbed, the fever, I, and I had read Dr. Semmelweis's book many years ago, but that's another fascinating story, and also has to do with the politics of birth, so just can you quickly talk about that, childbed fever and um, Dr. Semmelweis? And yeah, childbed what? fever was, um, it, it basically that's an infection that comes from the trauma of birth and moves up into the woman's body, and in various times in, in history that has claimed a lot of lives over time, including two of Henry VIII's uh, six wives died from from childbed fever after giving birth. Um, the, it was actually a relatively rare occurrence before the Industrial Revolution when people gave birth out on their farms. It was, uh, ironically, it was a, a relatively clean environment out there. But when everybody moved into the cities to, to look for jobs in factories, the, the crowding, the, uh, the the cities were basically overwhelmed. So uh, many cities in Europe built uh, receiving hospitals, which were or excuse me, lying-in hospitals, which were specifically for women to come and give birth, thought being that that was going to be safer for them. But it turned out that that just allowed infections to pass from woman to woman to woman much easier because the people taking care of them weren't washing their hands and hygiene was terrible. And so the, it was uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, who you referred to as um, an Austrian doctor, or he worked in Austria. Um, and he uh, he was the first one to figure out that, you know, the, what we're doing is actually causing this as opposed to it being some bad vapor in the air or something like that. And he he proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but then was completely ignored uh, to the point yeah, well, Can we stop on that and come back right after the break and finish up with that? Because I, I don't want to leave this story. 
we're going to we've got about 30 seconds left and i i want to i want to finish with this we're talking to dr mark sloan md he is author of birthday and he is a pediatrician exploring the science the history and the wonder of childbirth in his book and uh mark's going to say with us just a couple more minutes we have to take a short break i'm katherine sox lauren deller blake voiceamerica.com we'll be back Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Total career success. What does it mean to you? Voice America presents a radio program dedicated to help you achieve your career goal. Even in times of economic uncertainty, you can achieve your financial goals. Whether you're a college grad, new in the working environment, or a top-level executive, you will benefit from the practical and proven advice on job search and career advancement. Join Ken and Cheryl Dawson every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, for Total Career Success on Voice America. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Want to have behind-the-scenes access to some of the greatest minds of today? On Shift in Action, we feature leading-edge innovators who are building a more conscious, sustainable, and healthy culture. Host Stephen Dynan offers live shows with evolutionary leaders such as Deepak Chopra, Van Jones, and others who are creating new paradigms for conscious living. You can keep your finger on the pulse of the latest frontier work with our weekly transmission of inspired wisdom on Shift in Action, broadcast live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone with my co-host, Lauren Deller-Blake. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And it's the Did I say the Catherine Zox Show? Anyway, we are talking to Mark Sloan, MD, author of Birthday, two words, birth and day. He's a pediatrician. In the book, he explores the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. And you can go to his website, Mark Sloan, and Sloan is spelled S-L-O-A-N-M-D.com. Mark Sloan, MD.com. More information. You can buy the book, I guess, online, bookstores everywhere. And we will mention the website again before we say goodbye to Mark. But anyway, before we took the break, we were talking about childbed fever, Dr. Semmelweis. Um, in, uh, and where were we? You were describing um, 
well, the oh. history of childbed fever. Right, and, and uh, Semmelweis was the one who, uh, the man who first figured out that, that what doctors and, and nurses were doing was actually spreading this infection and the fact that the hygiene was so bad. So he did an experiment where he had his uh, uh, doctors soak their hands in some lime-type solution uh, between births, and, and the childbed fever rate just dropped dramatically. And when he published his results, I suppose he expected to, to be you know, greeted as a conquering hero, but he was, he was ignored and ridiculed, and the powers that were in Vienna at the time just sort of drove him out. He went back to his native Hungary and eventually kind of went mad. He, he wrote all these letters to... Uh, uh, obstetricians around the world accusing them of being murderers and things because they wouldn't wouldn't listen to him. And then he ended up ironically dying of a, he got a cut on his hand and got an infection and that led to his death. So it's a very sad story and it wasn't until 20 years later, I think, I don't have it in front of me right now, but that people really started to realize that he knew what he was talking about and they, and they started to change some of what they were doing. Well, weren't these doctors, they were going from, did you, going from bed to bed and working on cadavers and then putting right, themselves yeah. And then, and then delivering babies or examining women at their uteruses and, 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 um, besides, and then never washing their hands and, um. It is, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty grim how they operated. The, the, the doctors, uh, would do autopsies in the mornings and then they would come over and start doing, you know, helping out with deliveries with the nurses and the midwives. And they didn't wear gloves. Obviously, in those days, they didn't have gloves and they didn't wash their hands and they would just go from mother to mother after having done autopsies. It was pretty, pretty gruesome. And that's what was spreading, you know, the very women who had died of these infections, the doctors had those germs on their hands, and then they would spread them to you know, more women. So it's amazing when you look at it that no one put that together and that no one listened to him, but they didn't. But, but, what, that's the next question. What, you know, they didn't listen, not because they didn't have the information, but there was such a stake in maintaining the status quo. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think that's true not just in medicine, but obviously right. in other areas, but there's there's that stake that... And where does that come from? I mean, turn of the century, I don't know the statistics, and maybe you mentioned them in the book, but, I mean, women died in childbirth in, what, 19... We're talking about 1898, 1900s, by, I don't know what the percentage was, but, I mean, it was really risky because of of just what we've been talking about. Well, the the reason that he got ignored was, was I think, like any you know, profession, is that the people on the top sort of built their reputations on what they believe, what they supposedly proved with their own experiments. So I think that's probably what, what the problem was. There, one of my favorite quotes was from one of the doctors who opposed uh, Semmelweis, who uh, wrote that he dismissed this all as just ridiculous. And the quote was, if I get it right, it's, uh, um, a gentleman's hands are clean. So that meant, you know, if you were a gentleman, you would not, you, you could not spread germs because your hands were clean. There was no need to wash your hands. <laughs> so because no, being, being a gentleman was all that, all that was required. So they viewed it, the physicians at that time, as an attack on their person, right. as a and, gentleman. And the prevailing idea, not just in childbirth, but in, in infections in general, was uh, that, that infections were carried by foul air. Um, and so if you, were, you wouldn't want a garbage dump near your hospital because the germs would come up in the garbage dump and infect everybody. So it was, it was pretty radical what he was, what he was suggesting, that this was actually carried from person to person. And, that's, and, and it is true. It's like in any uh, major development that sort of, Put you outside the box, and uh, a lot of people are going to fight it at first because it's just going against what they were trained to believe and, and what they've promoted through their whole careers. So it's an unfortunately recurring theme. Yeah. So we have to we have to remember, don't we? I think what is the lesson in all this? I mean, it is you know we we uh, I think think that 
medicine is science, but it's also politics has a lot to do with it. And so, I mean, we really have to, and it's partly science, it's partly politics, it's partly culture, but all of that comes into play, doesn't it, in terms of our health care? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and politics plays a big role in, in the chapter, the section I wrote called Pain in Politics. There was an awful lot of politics that went into the development of uh, pain medications over the years and how women have at various times fought to get pain relief and then fought to not be given pain relief. You know, <laughs> It's a very convoluted, convoluted path, but there is yes, there's a lot of politics that goes into any kind of decision like that. Yeah, well, it's a great book, and I, I really enjoyed talking to you today. And I want to—I will let's mention the what your website, MarkSloanMD.com. Listeners can go to MarkSloanMD.com, and Sloan does not have an e on it. Uh, new book, his new book is Birthday, Birth, and then Day, and he's a pediatrician exploring the science, the history, and the wonder of childbirth. Um, Great having you on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Catherine. And there's a lengthy excerpt on the on the website if people want to get an idea. The opening of the book is pretty much there. All right, terrific. Yeah. What it's about. But thanks for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. That was a Lauren. I'm here. Yeah, great. It's a really good book. It sounds like it. Yeah, it's, I it's, love his perspective. What a, I, when the people have 30 years in service, yeah, they have such inner uh-huh. inner glimpses. Yeah. But the whole thing, I think this book points out, you know, it's it's, it's a history of, of childbirth and, it, yeah. you know, and all the what we talked about on the show. And we didn't get to everything, so that's why I really recommend this book. But, um, you know, if you think about, because, you know, health care is a huge issue today and what we're, you know, in terms of uh, <laughs> what we're going to do about our health care system and who gets it and who doesn't and all and, we tend to sometimes, I think they present it to us in, in kind of like scientific terms, and we have to remember that it all has to do with politics, and, and um, you know, that's all part of the picture. Um, I got a call yesterday from one of the Democratic committees. Who, they wanted more money uh-huh. because we have to fight against the Republicans who are trying to dispel uh, Obama's health care plan. I said, well, what is the health care plan? You know, you want, you know, she wanted a lot of money. And I, I said, you know, you have to be specific. And how are we spending the money? She was not glad she called me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and how are we spending the money and where is it going to? And where is the waste? Where is the waste that we, you know, we apparently, I remember the doctor we talked to two weeks ago, Dr. Yes. Robert Levine. Do, talking yes. about the, yeah, uh, about the waste that we have. The, you know, we have billions of dollars to spend, but the, it's just being wasted because of, you know, uh, we don't have time to talk about all the reasons. She was like, uh, she, <laughs> she had her little rap, and she couldn't be specific, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to give you any more money until you can really be specific about where the money's going and who's spending it and why we need to do it. Good for you. I think there is about accountability at this stage of the game. Mm-hmm. And not on just health care, but on everything that we're doing. is It's about accountability, and that's why I think the health care is such a hot topic is because it's, there's not a clear plan, and it's such a big deal. It's a big deal. Well, they're going to – it's – I mean, it's – it's. Um, I don't know why we can't get – I mean, I really don't know why we can't get – oh, she. I know what she said to me. She said, well, it's 900,000 pages. Oh, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> 9,000 pages. I said, well, does that mean you just pour more money into it because it's 9,000 pages of a health care thing that uh, – how's it going to work or who's going to – you know, what – she, thank you very much, and she hung up on me. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, we have to say goodbye. And it's Lauren Beller-Blake, my co-host. I'm Catherine Sox. 
social worker with a microphone. I hope you've had a great day or a great I time. Did. It was a fun yeah. hour. Thank you. Yeah, early in the morning. Um, you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Have a good week, and uh, Lauren and I will see you next week. you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.